So we are in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2 this evening. And uh, before we, we jump into the text, um, I almost made a little timeline slideshow. I don't know about you all. Um, I have been struggling trying to kind of uh, place this book in time to get the chronology of when Paul wrote this and, and what has come before, what's led up to this. Um, and then I, you know, Tommy recommended a couple of good commentaries, and neither of them actually exactly agree on the chronology here, so I'm going to pick one. And, and I think the, the premise, um, whether you prescribe to the fact that this may have been one of four letters that Paul wrote to them, maybe this is just one of two, um, how many visits did he make there? How long of a time there was between the writing of the letters? The, the, the purpose and the lesson is still the same. Paul cared about these people. He loved these people. And he wanted each and every one of them to, to invest themselves in Christ, to become more like Jesus. And you can just see the, the amount of effort that he's putting into uh, to this church. Um, I'm going to kind of read through this just to kind of recap of, of how we got here. And, and so follow along as best you can. So Paul arrives at Corinth from Athens at around A.D. 50. And he establishes a church there. This is in Acts chapter 18. He stays with Aquila and Priscilla. We read more about them. Uh, Paul leaves Corinth after about 18 months. This is about AD 52. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus, and then he goes to Caesarea and then to Antioch. Paul then begins another missionary journey, as we call it, to Ephesus, and he makes this city the center of his activity for probably around three years. So we're talking AD 52 until AD 55. So Paul writes a letter to Corinth concerning the immorality in the church there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, he references this. This letter was written prior to what we know as 1 Corinthians. Probably around AD 52 or 53. So the Corinthians then write Paul a letter asking certain questions about marital relations, idol foods, or order of worship. It's why Paul says in our 1 Corinthians concerning these things, he's replying to a letter that they wrote to him. So then Timothy is sent to Corinth. Perhaps he's carrying what we know as 1 Corinthians. And around this time, before Timothy arrived, false apostles come to Corinth in an attempt to undermine Paul's work. We read about them throughout this letter. But those, those individuals who are claiming apostolic authority have arrived now in Corinth, and they are, are causing issues. Timothy returns to Paul in Ephesus with a bad report of the conditions there. Paul hastens by ship to Corinth, but his visit is painful and unsuccessful. And that's what we seem to be reading about in this section, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So he returns to Ephesus. So Paul, having told the Corinthians he would go back to Corinth before going to Macedonia writes a letter in lieu of that visit. That's what we just read about in chapter 1. He said, I, I had said I was going to, but I, I changed my mind because it would be better for you that I not go. And he wrote this letter, he says, with many tears out of much affliction and anguish of heart, as we're going to read about. 
this letter was carried to Corinth by Titus. And we're going to read about Titus numerous times in, in this letter. So after the riot in Ephesus, which we read about in Acts chapter 19, Paul leaves Ephesus for Troas, probably in the spring of AD 55. He had arranged with Titus to meet him along a prearranged route, but uh, Paul had hoped to see Titus at Troas, but did not find him there. Um, he explains that later in this chapter. So not finding Titus, he, uh, Paul went on to uh, Macedonia. And somewhere in Macedonia, Titus catches up with Paul and brings a report that the Corinthians... Um, let's see. He brings a report that the situation in Corinth is improved. Paul, along with Tim, Timothy, sends a letter, what we know as 2 Corinthians which is taken by Titus and two brothers. They are to gather the Corinthian collection before Paul himself arrives in Corinth. Paul was planning to visit there shortly. So uh, there are several commentators that, that believe, and I, I tend to, to side with that, that there's a letter that existed uh, between First and Second Corinthians, this, this painful letter that we're going to read about in chapter 2. And again, what... Whether you count how many letters, uh, whether you want to keep track of how many visits, Paul is very intentional and very purposeful in his interaction with this church. He's trying to do everything he can to get them to change. Um, I hope that was helpful. What, what kind of questions or, or comments do we have on chapter 1 before we move on to chapter 2? If you've got a question or a comment, we can get a mic to you. Okay, so Micah thoroughly explained chapter 1. There are no questions. Can I get a volunteer? We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 tonight. Can I get uh, someone to read that section for us? All right, thank you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, that's chapter 2. There were no questions on chapter 1. You can't go back to chapter 1. You said 1 through 15. Uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 2, please. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come unto you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me? The other men... Who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, 
If I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Okay, thank you. So it's been recommended that we ask some of these kind of general questions, these study questions in this section. Uh, what, what stands out to you in this text? Or, or does this remind you of anything? Does it kind of uh, trigger some light bulbs? What jumped out to you as, as we read that? Yeah, so it uh, uh, gave you a remembrance of the woman caught in adultery, right? Had she sinned? Yes. Is that something that's, that's contrary to God? Yes. And there's a time for punishment and there's a time for mercy. Whoever this individual is, and we're going to talk about there are a couple of different ideas, this person had been punished, had been disciplined, but it seems like they had repented, and now it was time to forgive uh, Ellen. First four, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears. You know, I, I think that's something we've got to be actively purposing in our working with others in discipline in the church in any way, working with others. I know when my brother fell away, it wasn't a letter that was sent to him, but Adrian gathered at his door, sat with him, and cried with him during the evening. And I think it's going to be that kind of response to people that you go to them in whatever method you can but yeah. you go to them with tears and anguish of heart and that, that would indicate you're praying for them yeah. yeah this is not something when discipline has to be enacted it's not something any of us should take pleasure in God certainly does not uh, there's a passage that I love in Ezekiel chapter 33 Verse 11, God declares, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. He's talking to Israel here. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God, God's saying, this is not what I want. I take no pleasure in seeing this happen, so neither should we. Um, absolutely. Yes, Micah. What stood out to me in this reading, you were talking about some speculations to who this person is. I appreciate that it doesn't name who it is. Yeah. Um, you see in other letters that false preachers, those who are divisive, those who abandon faith, are called out by name. But um, he does not want to overly embarrass, he doesn't want to cause that sorrow. Yeah, yeah. so you're absolutely right. There are times where Paul gets very specific. And it's, it seems like in those instances, those are people who, 
in unrepentant fashion are continuing to do this destructive behavior, and Paul's trying to warn people to get out of their way. Um, but in this instance, th- this person seems to have come back to God. He wants to repent, and now how, do, how is this group going to respond? Bob? I have two things here. First of all, in the first section, it, it shows Paul being a parent. Mm-hmm. These were his kids. These were his children. And, and it pained him to speak as harshly as he had to uh, to them because of you know their ideas and their actions and that. They had to be disciplined. And the second uh, section uh, gives us insight as to the purpose of discipline in the first place. Right. To make a change in that person's life, to bring them back. It's not a forever uh, punishment type of thing. Yeah. The purpose is restoration. Yes. And we, we talked about that, uh, what has it been, a couple of quarters ago in the, the fellowship, the discipline um, class upstairs. Um, Discipline from the majority is is not primarily for the purpose of punishment. It is primarily for the purpose of restoration. God tells us that it is an effective means to bring them back. That's the goal. The goal is not to get them out of here and I never want to see them again. No, the goal is to soften the heart so that they want to want to come back. Any other thoughts? Any other things that jumped out? We're going to kind of walk through this a little bit and ask a few more specific questions. Paul does an interesting thing here in in chapter 2 where he kind of tells part of the story, but he doesn't really complete the thought until chapter 7. He seems to kind of come back around and and complete more of this thought. Uh, So there there will be some reference um, to what he says in chapter 7. But he says there in verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. It's one of these words he uses a whole bunch here. Pain. Um, Paul did not want to to make another painful visit. Who who is he worried about experiencing pain here? It's kind of a funny way of asking the question, but... Okay, so Joy says himself. You're right. And actually, both is, is what I was going to say. It, it's painful for him. You know, he, he talked about uh, writing out of much affliction and anguish. So there's the pain there. But the main thing in the second beginning of verse five is is uh, the the pain is uh, their pain. He didn't want the pain them. Uh, you know, he says several times, uh, uh, okay, well, in the first part, not another painful visit for you, for if I cause you pain in verse 2, you know, that's what his emphasis is, yeah. but of course we understand he was pained as well. Right, so Paul was pained to even write such a letter. And whether you consider that to be 1 Corinthians, I think Paul gets, gets pretty stern in 1 Corinthians. Um, many assume that there was another letter where he got even more so. So much so that, that Paul almost felt bad, it seems, for being so, so harsh. It caused him pain to do it. 
But he's also concerned about giving them pain. You know, uh, discipline hurts. And it would be painful, he said back in chapter 1, it would have been painful for me to show up and this be unresolved. Because then I would have to be, he says in chapter 13, he would have to come um, in severity and and come in in a stern way. He he didn't want to cause them that kind of pain. Who else is he concerned about here as experiencing unnecessary pain? Well, right, so, so the group there, right, the, the church there, the Christians there, and Paul himself. In verse 7, the excessive sorrow for the him who got punished by the Pope. Yes, so you've got this individual, whoever he might be. Paul is concerned that this person will experience such pain, such sorrow and anguish, that it's not actually going to bring the person back, it's going to push them further away. And so again, we just see, we see Paul's heart as a father. We see someone who loves these people. He, he understands that there's going to be some growing pains here, but he is not trying to give them unnecessary pain. He's, he's trying to save them from any, from any of that, if he can. And they get to choose, basically. Their response to all of this is going to determine how, how difficult or, or how easy this is going to be. And you can just, you can hear him in verses 2 and 3. He, he wants to come to them and, and get joy from them. He, he wants to, to be around good Christian people who, who lifted him up and encouraged him. He was there for 18 months. Think of the relationships that he developed. He said, I wanted to come and, and get that kind of benefit from you, but I, I can't. He says, while this is happening... I can't, you know, if I'm there causing you pain, who's going to make me glad? You're the one who's supposed to be doing that. Um, We've got to resolve this. Why did Paul fear that a visit to the church at Corinth would would cause both he and the Christians their pain? What, What were his intentions in writing his previous letter? He actually says it in this section. Why go through all of this? Yes. Well, in verse 9 it says, I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you're obedient in everything. And then he goes on to extend it, saying, anyone you've forgiven, which I assume would be part of their obedience, he would also forgive those people. He's not going to hold a grudge against somebody sinned and repented that everybody has forgiven. Mm-hmm. And by extension of that, <coughs> it's to their benefit. And he's also watching out for them. He doesn't want this to be a temptation for them. Um, Satan's involved, obviously, taking advantage of them, mm-hmm. if that's a problem. Yeah, absolutely right. He wanted, he wanted to see how they would respond. And that's the gospel you present the good news, you present what, what God's will is for each and every one of us, and, and we get to choose. We get to choose how we respond. Um, Paul had the authority of an apostle to tell them what to do and to show up at Corinth and start busting heads and say, make it happen. And, and he knows he can't do that. You can't do that with the gospel. Um, he's, he's imploring with them. He's, he's appealing to them to try and, and get them to make the choice. He's using this delay to enforce upon them how much he loves them. Yeah. 
If he had just showed up and started, you know, enforcing what needed to be enforced, they might not have seen that. You know, it's hard for us to look at when we've been uh, disciplined at the person who's doing it, and you know, we think, you don't love me, and you're doing this to me, and he didn't want that. Right. Right. But that's human nature, and so this. The, this letter, or both letter, or however many letters, uh, was meant to let them know he really cares. Yeah. And if he has to say something, it's not out of hatred; it's out of love. Right. Exactly right. Did I see another hand? Nope. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, Josh. Yeah, I, I think uh, another way that I take this testing your obedience thing is by giving them time to obey as opposed to showing up and saying you're going to do it. There's a very big difference between those two scenarios. Doing something because somebody is telling me to do it, because they're here to enforce it and can see it through, versus I'm being told that I'm getting enough rope to hang myself if that's what I want to do. And sure. I'm actually having a change of heart that's necessary to go ahead and do it, even though there's no Pressure yeah. And we see Paul, we see God use both tactics depending on the circumstance and depending on, on, on the individual. Um, sometimes God is very harsh and very direct and he expects things very quickly. But we're also told that God is long-suffering. I mean, we read about, if we start tallying up the years, we read about him giving nations hundreds of years to change their ways before he finally brings judgment. Um, God is gracious. God is patient. And Paul is too. It's not indefinite. He's not going to say, it doesn't matter. Take as much time as you need. It really is no big deal. But he's going to give them time. This is now his third, fourth letter, perhaps. His second, third trip. He, he's going to say here at the end of, of, uh, of chapter 13, I'm planning to come, and I would like to come in this way with a good response from you, and I'd like to come. In, but I am prepared to come in this way if, if, if I need to. Uh, did I see another hand? <clears throat> so let's talk about, briefly, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, because I did this afternoon and realized it was not as productive. Who, who is this person that's being discussed here? What are some, some thoughts? <laughs> and my cross-reference takes it back to the fornicator. Yes. But is there a reason to doubt that? Because I've asked the question now. There obviously is. No, no, no. Because I'm going to tell you who it really is. Okay. <laughs> that is, I, I would say, one of the most common suggestions is this is the individual mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The man who against even the culture at that time, had taken his father's wife in adultery. And the, what was the prescribed, um, what was the prescription for this individual? What needed to be done? They needed to specifically, how does he word it? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And then I appreciate how he typed it in with 
Yes. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's right. If all we had was the first part of verse 5, we would think this is punishment and it's to get him out of there and it's to show him what for. But the second part of verse 5 said this is what it's for. The purpose of this is to restore this man. And so that's the hope. So is this individual in chapter 2, is this that individual who has committed a sin but come back in repentance and now the church is struggling, it seems, with he did this egregious thing. How do we respond to him now? Is he really sorry? Um, Because we've never had thoughts like that, have we? I know you're sorry, but I'm going to make sure that you mean it. I can forgive you, but that doesn't mean I trust you. Um, Paul is, is trying to set those things aside and say that's not how you respond to this individual. Is there a... Uh, yeah? The passage of, with the fornicator before led me to 2 Corinthians 7.11 where he says, See, with this, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation with alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done, at every point you prove yourself to be innocent in this matter. So whoever it was, if it was a fornicator, they made sure they did it the way that the verse there says. Yes. So, um, and, and I appreciate you bringing chapter 7 into it. I think it's chapter 7 that, that starts to raise some questions as to whether this individual here in, in chapter 2 is the fornicator. He doesn't have a name, so we'll just call him the fornicator. Who, uh, who, who knows of uh, the other kind of secondary suggestion of who this individual might be? Surely I'm not bringing like brand new information that no one's ever heard of. Micah, who's this individual potentially? Could it potentially be somebody who has wronged Paul um, directly and, and they ostracized him uh, on account of that? And, and so he's letting them all know straightforward, hey, I have nothing against him. I have forgiven him and you should as well. Yes. So that's, that's what has been suggested. Based on how Paul talks about it. Whoever this individual is seems to have, in verse 5, personally wronged Paul. And so based on what we know of the, the person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that person's sin had nothing to do with Paul. It had been committed with Paul absent. The discipline was supposed to happen with Paul absent. But this individual seems to have personally wronged Paul. And Paul, in verse 5, says, it's not really that he caused harm to me. He, he caused harm to you. It has been suggested, and again, I'm not taking sides here. I think the point is, is the same regardless of who it is. But it's been suggested that this is one of those individuals that Paul alludes to throughout this letter as those who's trying to exert leadership, exert a false apostleship over this group and claim that Paul is not really, he's, he's not really, uh, he doesn't care for you. Paul doesn't really love you. It's this individual who's spreading these these kind of um, mistrust, this mistrust in Paul among this, this group. And, and one of the reasons why some suggest that is what was mentioned in chapter 7. 
the suggestion is this person had even started convincing this group to believe some of these things, so much so that in chapter 7, Paul is saying, you felt the need to repent. You as a group felt the need to repent in zeal and you know, attempting to clear yourselves. It almost seemed like they had kind of fallen into believing some of what this individual was, was saying. Um, Tommy handed me two commentaries, and each commentary said something different about this particular point. So, but what's the point? What's the point? Regardless of who did the wrong and what the wrong was, what are we meant to understand from this, this passage? They took care of it. How? How was Paul encouraging them to take care of it? Bob? Yeah, we don't get any names here. There are clearly people uh, among that group. It sounds like those that have come in after Paul was there that are trying to upset some things. Um, so again, I don't want to spend too, too long on it. Um, it's a worthwhile study. And uh, last week I was thoroughly convinced. I listened to a, a, a class that Chris Emerson did on this. He made some exceptional points that it's the person mentioned back in 1 Corinthians 5. And then I read a few more things today and went... Sure. But the point is the same. And, and what's the point, Micah? Oh, I'm sorry, Tim. Um, I was thinking about verse 11. Uh, Thus Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of these devices. And then it talks about verse 2, for your sakes, uh, just if we could put ourselves in a mental state of unforgiveness and division and negative thoughts. 
Correct. Correct. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I appreciate you bringing that up. Paul is warning them that they have an individual here who seems to be showing a repentant heart, and they, it seems, are hesitant to offer him forgiveness. He says, you should rather... He says, for such a one, in verse 6, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What's a word in verse 6 that we just heard a whole bunch back in chapter 1? Josh? Comfort. Comfort. And what did we learn about comfort back in chapter 1? Okay, and where does it come from? Strength. It comes from strength, but who provides it? It comes from God. It comes from God, and what are we supposed to do with it when we've received it? It's the cyclical thing. We are supposed to appreciate the comfort that we've been given in our affliction and then turn and give that comfort to others. Is sin an affliction? Is it painful? Is it hard? And when we've come to God for repentance and He has promised to forgive us, it's a comforting thing. And He's saying, don't deny this person what God has given you. When you came to God and and you asked for forgiveness and He gave you that comfort, He says, turn and forgive Him and comfort Him. That's what it's for. Um, Don't don't withhold that from Him. Alan. Galatians 6 talks about restoring such a one gently. And yet, later on in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I will come and punish whatever you lack after you've been obedient. So, he's insisting they do it, do it gently, but do it, or he will bring whatever punishment he yeah, and I appreciate that about Paul. Similar to, to 1 Corinthians, they came to him with really hard questions, and instead of saying, this is the answer, next question, he tells them how he gets to that answer. He tells them the heart behind the answers to those questions. He could have very early in this letter said, shape up, this is how you do it, get it done, and I'm coming there next week. But he doesn't do that. He reminds them of what they know the gospel is. He reminds them of who they know Jesus is. And he implores them, he appeals to them to to do this. And he does, near the end of the letter, say, "And, and I'll come and make sure this gets done. But my prayer, he says, my hope is that, that you make the decision to do this. So we're supposed to comfort How would Paul's own experience with forgiveness and acceptance play into his instruction here in verses 5 through 11? This is something really helpful that that Micah brought up when he and I were studying about this. What does Paul know about forgiveness? Christians, even to the point of having some put to death, um, holding the cloak of of Stephen, uh, I mean, coat of those who were stoning Stephen. Right. And uh, so he's done a lot. He he had a lot to be forgiven of. Yeah. Jesus forgave him. God forgave him. 
And then he went back to a church most likely that he had been persecuting itself. And they forgave That's right. So in Acts chapter 9, after Saul of Tarsus has, in, has encountered the, the Lord on the road to Damascus, it's now been a couple of years, a few years, and, and he returns to Jerusalem. It's not perhaps he had persecuted. He killed Stephen or was there approving the killing of Stephen in Jerusalem, right? So this is the church. Those wounds are probably still fresh. And he says, I'm one of you guys. Can I come in and worship with you all? Do you remember what the response was? Acts chapter 9 says, They were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. I think I would probably have a similar response. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Are you kidding me? You're a, you're a Christian now? And you want, to come, you want to come inside? You were the guy who held the clothes while they threw stones at a guy until he died. But what happened? What happened to Saul, Alan? Well, I was thinking of Barnabas. Yes. Barnabas is known as the comforter. Yes. And he comforts Paul, brings Paul into them, comforts the congregation that Paul is someone different now. Yeah. And maybe all that is coming back as he says, comfort in Corinthians. I wonder. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is the one who vouches for Saul. And he takes Saul to the apostles and says, look, this is what I know of him. This is, the, this is what happened to him on the road, and I've, I've been witness to the fact that he's been out preaching. And you need to trust him. You need to believe that he's sincere. And so what an impression, what a comfort that must have been for Saul. So for Saul to then tell these Corinthians, look, someone is coming with a penitent heart, and they're saying they're changed. You all need to be a Barnabas to this individual. And so in our, own, in our own lives, maybe someone is coming to us and they are, they are repenting of a sin that they have committed countless times before. You've seen this before. You've been through this. This is not your first rodeo. And the thought may creep into your mind, I've, I've done this before. You're not going to fool me this time. Who, who are we? Who are we to withhold forgiveness from someone like that? If they've gone to God and they've repented of that sin and they've expressed genuine sorrow, godly sorrow, as we're going to read about later, we need to be a Barnabas to that kind of a person. Lest they actually get overwhelmed with even more sorrow than the sin itself caused and they fall back into something worse. Josh? That's like the worst possible thing. In addition, 
to sinning, that's putting at risk giving up Christ himself and everything that goes along with that. Um, verse 8, in a way, rewords what forgiveness and comfort should be. That is reaffirming love to him. Yes. So it's not enough to just forgive somebody and go about your day, because that doesn't help repair the relationship. Comfort drives home that the forgiveness is real. Forgiveness with love. Yeah. Comfort with love. You, you can't separate those two. Right. Uh, so something I really appreciated about Chris Emerson's class on this was he said, what if we showed up in heaven and we realized that God forgave us the way we've forgiven some people down here? Where it's, I forgive you, you've done wrong to me, but we're not really friends anymore. Like, you're not welcome, and when we're at yeah, get-togethers, you'll be over there and I'll be over here because... You know, the thing you did to me was so egregious. And we show up to heaven and God's like, I forgive you, so you go over to that part of heaven and I'll be over here. Like, of course not. That's not what God does to us. And so that's not, that's not how we ought to give forgiveness to others. I tried to find the, the author of this quote. It was attributed to Gandhi. It was attributed to Buddha. I'm not sure. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And we're, we're just harming ourselves. Yes? The other um, aspect of the seriousness of this is in verse 11. That the heart that, um, oops. The right. sore places in my heart, the offended places in my heart that Places that become hard, those are Satan's playground. He yes. loves that. And I have um, had him work on me in my life. I've seen the um, destruction that causes. Yeah. That he really takes advantage of your um, pain. And mm-hmm. he can do, um, you know, really destructive things with that. So that's another way to take this seriously. Another way to look at how important it is. Yeah. It does remind me of the situation with Cain and Abel, where God makes the God lets Cain in on what's happening in the spiritual realm here. He's like Satan is right here and he's waiting to see how you respond to this instruction I've just given to you. He's waiting at the door and he wants you. And I, I hear Paul saying this as well. You, you be careful how you respond here because Satan wants this to go a certain way and it's not for your good. It's a, he says we, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. I like the King James version of that, but his schemes. Don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant. Satan wants this to go a certain way and it's going to involve you not truly forgiving that person. struck. Um, you can call it punishment, but the plan was um, 
the benefits of, of true forgiveness. Um, with the time that we have remaining, uh, we mentioned in verse 8, he says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's what we talked about last quarter. That's what 1 Corinthians just spills over with that. What does forgiveness reaffirm to a, a penitent sinner? Love. And how does that theme manifest itself throughout the gospel story? So think about what we just spent those months studying through 1 Corinthians. What is love based on 1 Corinthians? And how does, how does it manifest itself here? And how do we see that mani- manifested throughout the gospel story? It's a big question, and we've got just three or four minutes. What does it make you think of? Micah. One thing that stands out to me is the word reaffirm. He doesn't say, start loving him again. Yeah. They have been loving him this entire time. They've been mourning over his sin. Um, but to reaffirm that. Um, and so, just with Jesus. Jesus continues to love and to see uh, the patience and the kindness uh, and, and not rejoicing in the wrongdoing and in the punishment. Uh, but it's always there. It's not that uh, love is a... Love never fails. Love never fails. I've read that somewhere. And you, you mentioned a couple more, right? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, we're told. It rejoices in the truth. And so... If this was perhaps the, uh, the man in, a, in adultery that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that the group there at the time was actually boasting about the fact that he was still among them. They were willing to tolerate. Maybe they had even convinced themselves that it was a loving thing to do. We're still going to accept you. You're still here. You're still one of us. But love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. But at the same time, it's patient and it's kind. It bears all things. Love doesn't fail. And so, yeah, that's what I'm hoping we can kind of think through. Uh, Paul is continuing the same message in 2 Corinthians as he did in the first. Uh, I think of Peter and Jesus' relationship um, in that Jesus isn't afraid to call Peter out and does several times. Um, but he always comes back with, but Peter, I need you, and I want you, and I'm lifting you up so that you can lift others up. Um, and it's, it's that choice of, okay, Peter, you're going to betray me. He looks at him and he betrays him. 
Okay. Yep, you screwed up. But I love you. So come on. Because I want you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just that back and forth. And that, that choice of my heart's telling me not to trust you, but because we're serving the same God, and He has decided to trust me of all people, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to sacrifice for you. And I'm going to serve you in the way that I'm asked to. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus makes himself available. And, and Jesus says, I, you know, I'm here and this is what I need from you. And, and he gives us the choice. I, I see Peter making very similar choices in those final few hours of Jesus' life as Judas did. They both betrayed and denied this man. And then they chose how they were going to respond to it when they finally realized what they had done. Um, we're still given the same choice. So is that the first bell or the second? A second bell. Well... Um, okay, we will finish chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians um, on Sunday. So I'd encourage you to, to read through the whole chapter again and be ready for that. Uh, thank you all.